Time is a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective, hosted by Tim Ullman and Jack Caliber. The ULC envisions a future in which all congregations fully equip the priesthood of all believers through world-class leadership development at the local level. Lead Time taps into biblical wisdom for practical solutions to today's burning issues. Each podcast confronts real-time struggles facing the local church and a post-Christian culture. Step into the action with the ULC at uniteleadership.org. This is Lead Time. Welcome to Lead Time. Tim Allman here with Jack Kalberg, and today we have the awesome privilege of getting to know another one of uh, LCEF President Bart Day's good friends. His name is Reverend Jason uh, Brayton. Jason comes to us uh, as a pastor from Emmanuel Lutheran in Tuscola. Am I saying that right? Tuscola, yeah. Illinois? Yeah. Yeah, right in right in the heartland, uh, about two and a half hours outside of Chicago and St. Louis and Indianapolis. And uh, he comes to us after serving 13 years in that context. Before that, he was a fundraiser at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. And he is also a podcaster himself with the Gottesdienst Group. He's got a podcast called The Gottesdienst Crowd. So this is going to be a lot of fun today chatting with you, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us. How you doing, brother? Uh, doing well, better than I deserve. So facts. Yeah. All of us, all yeah. of us. So let's, let's just talk a little bit about your ministry story. What do you love most about being a, a proclaimer of the word, a distributor of the sacraments and why, if you just go a little bit deeper, I think we oftentimes start with why, why are you in ministry in general, Jason? Thanks so much for hanging. Yeah. Well, you know, but, my mom always said that I had wanted to be a pastor since I was four, apparently. But I also wanted to be a garbage <laughs> man to hang off the side. So I'm, I don't know how serious I was at the age of four. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't know. I, it just it sort of became natural. Um, I started studying business in college and. Uh, was bored by it. It didn't interest me. I didn't love it. I could do it, but it wasn't anything that I really, really loved. Uh, what I love to do actually is argue. Um, I, I mean, and talk, right? Get into real conversations, not just in passing fluff. Uh, I wanted to talk about real things and things that really mattered. And so I was into philosophy, I was into ethics, and that brought me into theology. And I was always involved in church as a, as a, as a boy and a, as a young man. Um, but it just kind of became obvious, why don't I do this for a living? This almost like, what else would I do? What else could I do? <clears throat> so I love it. Well, thanks for, thanks for saying yes. What are... We live in a day and age, Jason Wright, and Jack, I'd love to get your comments on this, where conversations are remarkably shallow, and yeah. we don't spend a lot of time, uh, and this can infect the church too, you know, just keep it super surface level, and, and I love that you, uh, how does that how does that desire for depth get played out in your congregational life? What are the kind of rhythms of interacting with Jesus around the Word, and then really deep topics that interest you? How has that kind of evolved in your, your leadership as a parish pastor, Jason? Well, I, I primarily, um, you know, one of the recurring phrases that I try to to talk about is like you are looking for a way to stay in conversations not to get out of them 
um, you are trying to continue a conversation, not just stop it. And whether that's at home or with your fellow believers in church or even as you witness to those around you in your daily life, so often we are focused on moving on, getting to the next thing, instead of really enjoying the moment and finding a way to stay in that conversation, just to be human. And we've lost that. I mean, you walk around your, I don't know what your neighborhoods look like, but you know, you walk around at night in our town and you might have a family in one room, but they're all staring at a screen, uh, whether it's in their hand or on the wall. Um, you saw a little of that go away just after COVID uh, or during COVID when people would come outside and then talk on front porches again. But, you know, for the most part, that kind of trying to stay in a conversation and continue discussion is is an art that has been lost or a skill that has been lost. And I, I kind of feel like part of my job, even though it's not my job, to teach them how to be human is to teach them how to be human, like how to stay in conversations for the good of their family or their uh, church body, you know, the, the life of their church or even just being neighborly. So you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you, you had an affinity for arguing about things and uh, then, then you move on to conversations. There's a difference between having an argument and having a conversation with somebody. Usually I think about an argument is you're trying to win. Um, a conversation is you're trying to go a lot deeper than that. You're trying, why, why don't you give your distinction? What's the distinction between arguing and conversing? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't, uh, I teach logic, so I don't really distinguish them quite as, as harshly. Um, I, I would just distinguish between what the, um, you know, what the enemy is like, I am trying to win, uh, but I'm not trying to beat the person. Uh, I'm trying to, the enemy is the situation, whatever, whether it's a difficulty or whether it is they're unbelievers and they don't understand where I'm, where I'm coming from. You know, I need to understand where they're coming from so that I can actually apply the word of truth to where they're coming from or what they see on a daily basis or what their objections are. So I do really think that I'm trying to win, but I, and that I'm in an argument, I'm trying to convince them of something. Um, but that doesn't exclude all the things that normal human beings do in terms of understanding where people are coming from and what the obstacles are to getting them from point A to point D so to speak. So the so I don't try to make a harsh distinction in that terms. I I would just try to say when I'm talking to my folks, you're not trying to browbeat people, of course. Uh but you are trying to convince them. And you should have in your mind that there is a situation here that is the enemy or something that you're trying to overcome. And if you are thinking that uh, you know, you have to have a certain amount of tactical empathy uh, to understand where they're, what the actual things are that they are struggling with. So, um, so yeah, does that answer your question? 
It, it, it does. It, it really points to what is the identity that you ascribe to the person that you're talking to, right? If you, if you see that person as your adversary or your enemy, then that's going to create a certain type of tone in your conversation. Sure. If you see things in, in the context of greater spiritual warfare that's going on, I think that's what, what, what changes the way your, your, your motivation when you're talking with people. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all know the, what is it? The seven thirty eight fifty five rule, uh, you know, only 7% of what you're trying to communicate is communicated by your words. 38% is communicated by your tone. 55% is by your body language. And this is just right. a fact of nature. Like this is just what life in the world is. And if you don't take that into consideration at all whatsoever, um, well, I mean, there's going to be a lot of losing for you. And, you know, and I like to win. So <laughs> I, I, I want to set up things in such a way that 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 can come on. Do I do it perfectly? Of course, I don't, you know, because sometimes, you know, my sinful nature gets the best of me. Yeah, I was just reading uh, Never Split the Difference, and they talk about that exact same rule. And it just gets me thinking, like, uh, when we talk to each other on social media, all we have really is the words. So you're really just using the 7%. And it's really fascinating to think about how much gets lost then in those conversations, because people don't hear your tone. They don't see your body language. It's, uh, yeah, that makes you really think. Yeah, and... Uh, and so these are all tools. We we would never want to give up to a tool unless it's a absolutely evil tool. These are all tools to be used. Uh, but we have to, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. And so maybe not everything it needs to be used in that manner. And so you just have to think about how how do you want to use those particular tools for the thing that you're trying to trying to accomplish. Yeah, I totally love that. Agree. Let's hang with let's hang with the tools for a bit. What what sort of tools as a, a pastoral leader uh, trying to shape the head and hearts, uh, the tone of your respective congregation as they engage both in person and online? What what sort of tools, uh, Pastor Brayton, are you trying to pass on to to God's people for their uh, work in the world? Well, one thing you know that I tell them a lot is. Well, there are two primary things. One is we are first and foremost a people of hope. And so mm -hmm. despite how bad it may look or how bad things really are, um, you know, it's one thing to be red-pilled. It's another thing to be black-pilled. Like, we're not to be cynics. Uh, we're not called to cynicism. Uh, so if you want to talk about what's reality and what you actually see, fine. Um, but you... You can't talk about it in such a way like Jesus isn't raised from the dead or that he's not coming back or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that they need to do in reframing what they're seeing is, you know, consider St. Paul. Um, every single, if you read the book of Acts, you know, every single city he goes to, he ends up like either being stoned or imprisoned or shipwrecked or in chains or whatever. Um, and he gets back up and goes to the next town. Uh, mm. 
And then you read First, uh, Second Corinthians and the whole litany of the stuff that he yeah. says he went through. And there's stuff there that's not included in Acts. So he went through more. Right. And at the end of that, he says, and I del- for the sake of Christ, I delight. I mean, it's often translated as content, but I delight in my weaknesses and sufferings. And so there's a certain frame of, look, you know, discipline and hard things are good. And we shouldn't just flee from pain and difficulty because God is at work. And it's at that very time that you should be thinking, I can't wait to see what God is going to do through this difficulty. Like, I'm excited to see, I'm delighting in it. And, you know, the way the Navy SEALs or the, you know, the bros get in the weight room, or I don't know, but you know this attitude that you go into a difficult thing and people just, they delight in it. And we, I think Christianity has become anemic in this manner, uh, that we don't delight in difficult things. In putting our mind and the gifts that God has given us to use. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, uh, and I put these two things together, is um, God has not, this is applied to Timothy, but God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and faith and hope. Um, And that in 1 Corinthians at the beginning, St. Paul says, uh, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. He has given you everything. It's all there. Now, whether you put that to use is a different, it's a different deal, but it's not like he's holding out on you. And so those kind of two things together, we're not to have a spirit of fear, but to, to, to move forward in boldness and in faith, um, because he has not held out on us. He has given us everything that we need. And so we should move forward with that kind of boldness of enduing a zeal, zealousness. Yes. That's so good, brother. Um, I, I totally resonate in the midst of our uh, highly affluent, uh, very individualistic, postmodern, whatever, lack of truth. Uh, our, our suffering muscle, Jason, has atrophied. And uh, the Holy Spirit, through suffering and trial and, and loss, wants to build us back up. I mean, Romans 5, 1 is like a, a life verse, right? I rejoice in suffering. And this is this is the the journey of Jesus. This is the way of the cross, right? I mean, I rejoice in suffering, knowing what? Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character to what you said right, right up front, hope. And every time the Apostle Paul uses hope, it's pointing us to the crucified, risen, resurrected, reigning, and soon to return one, Jesus, Jesus the Christ, that just as he's been risen, so, so too will we. So what do we have to be afraid of? I, I if, the everyday baptized Christian, follower of Jesus, in our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod context, had that sort of robust hope and then trust and faith through the suffering. Imagine how our witness in the world in a variety of different vocations would just be elevated. So 10 to 1, man, are we listening to the words of, of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Are we immersing ourselves in the narrative of Scripture, or are we becoming crippled and and atrophied and just inwardly focused and just protective right now? I, this is a great day and age in the midst of the 
potential chaos in the American Christian scene. You know, it could suffering could be closer to us now than especially yeah. when you and I began ministry, right, Jason, a number of years ago. And and I think this is an excellent I don't know how else to look at it. It's an excellent time for us to be the baptized, the redeemed, because we're going to bring hope to a dark and dying world, man. So I, I love, love that. I, I'd love for you to go a little bit deeper. How are like the narrative of scripture? One of our big, big emphases right now um, in our context is, is Old Testament and New Testament, primarily Old Testament and understanding of why Jesus is so necessary because of the Old Testament uh, narrative and the typology that's rooted throughout the Old Testament that just makes our our faith and the need for Jesus become all the more more necessary. So how are you trying to instill kind of biblical literacy at the base le- level as you walk through uh, the liturgy, the the orders, the the church calendar, etc.? What's that look like for you? Um. Well, if if you're going to be hopeful and you're going to uh, have have something to offer, that means you have to have the thing to offer. So, so you just kind of have to step back and say, well, what do they need? And so, part of what they need is they know that kind of on a surface level that the Bible has all the answers. They, but they don't know all the questions and or the objections or how God answers all of those, right? So, so I spent a quite a, uh, quite a lot of time just going through the creation narrative and that it's not just that God created everything, but he put it into order, right? He separates mm-hmm. these things and he, he organizes things, and that order is a good order. So it's not just that he called it into existence, but when it's in existence, he puts like kinds with like kinds. He he separates this. He makes distinctions. He, in in this way, discriminates between this thing and that thing, um, and and so thus makes judgments about them, right? So so making judgments and this is what logic is all about is either affirming or denying something about something else and so you cannot go through life without making a judgment you can't go through life without making a distinction or uh or discriminating between this and that and all those things are good and so part of part of what i feel like i'm trying to do a lot is just kind of take back normal English vocabulary to say you're going to hear that judging is bad always. Hmm. You're going to hear that making a discrimination on uh, on any level is bad and evil. And I'm just here to tell you, look, that's not the case. There is a way to go wrong with those things. I'm not saying you can't. Every everything that God gives us is an occasion for us to sin, like money or wealth or technology or anything. But just because it is an occasion for sin doesn't mean it's automatically evil. And so just kind of walking them back to to I, I don't know. I feel like I'm decatechizing them from the world. And mm. like decatechizing what they hear. The majority of time when they're watching television, listening to the radio, reading the newspaper, or interacting with their people at work, that they're getting a catechesis that is contrary to God's word, 
that I have to undo, that I have to refute and show how actually they've twisted God's word. And now we have to unravel that and say, this is the part that's good. And, you know, here's how you go off the rails. So what I tried to end up doing is I spent a lot of time trying to unravel the anti-catechism of the world or the, the, the anti-biblical catechism of the world so that they have a framework for understanding whatever they're hearing and they can hear, okay, well, they're saying judging is bad, but I know from church and from my pastor and from the Bible that actually there's an occasion to judge. So is this an occasion to judge or not? And who, who makes that decision? Is God telling me that I need to judge about this or is the world telling me I can't? Who has the, by who, you know, by what standard, by whose authority? So I, that's how I feel like I'm doing. And I use the Old Testament, the New Testament, anything I can to pull out the, the distinction between the world's catechism or catechesis and God's catechism and God's catechesis. I, I've never heard the phrase anti-catechism before, and I love it. I think that's fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. I would really love, like, from your perspective, as you're leaning into this, what would you say are the core tenets that are being taught in the anti-catechism? Uh, uh, that there is a God, but it's you. Um, mm -hmm. So you are your own God. Uh, that... Uh, uh, that if it's if you're God, then you decide what happens with your body and then what you can do with your life, um, that you have complete and utter control. And when then you lack control, it's totally normal to lash out in um, strife or anger or wrath or jealousy. Um, and so, I mean, the primary thing is just the first commandment. And again, I think what where you see most of these things kind of prop up is not in the gospel. I think like our day is we are just lacking in teaching in God's law and the goodness of his law, the orderliness of his law, thus kind of some kind of sanctification as well discussion. Um, that's where Satan is attacking. Right. You know, the, during the Reformation, he was attacking the second article. Bam. Like, you can work your way to heaven. Um, in our age, just after the Reformation, you know, in the, the age of orthodoxy, it was the third article. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? So on and so forth. I think our age is the first article of the creed. It is all about God and his creation, the order that he has instituted within it, and the means by which he establishes that order, his word, either the commandments or other other commands that he's given so and and attending blessings that he attaches to those things so that's not to say that the second article isn't in view it always is they're all connected however i i think where it really hits our people at least my people the people that i interact with those who have to uh, go to hr meetings and the, those kinds of things, they're they're hearing an anti-catechism against creation and everything that goes along with that. So you've got evolution, 
death is part, uh, is, is a feature, not a, uh, not a bug. Um, you know, it's not the consequence of sin, but it's how we get better. It's how we progress. Um, so all of those things are kind of wrapped up into it. And then, I mean, that kind of leads you with, you are your own God and death is just natural. And that is just, it's actually not how we experience it. That's not how they experience it. That's why they get so mad. And that's why they get so sad. And that there is something else. And you weren't meant for this. Right? So that's that's part of like unveiling like the, you know, Toto ripping the curtain off of the Wizard of Oz. You know, the world keeps saying don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. But like we gotta we gotta expose the man behind the curtain. Oh, Jason, dude. I love history, and I think the way you just kind of, at a very high level, walk through the last 500 years of church history on the attack on on second article, you could say Reformation, and then you've got uh, Pentecostalism to a degree that, that took place in the evangelical. We still got some remnants of that in our culture today as well. But that the attack today, the reason we know we are firmly in a post-Christian culture is that the the— Attack is against the first article. Did God really say? Did God really create? Is mm-hmm. there even a creator? In the beginning, God created. Like, this is just foundational stuff. And so it has been uh, a, a dismantling of of what is most true right now. And and I couldn't agree with you more that it is a first article uh, attack to the utmost. And, and where do we start in our catechesis? Going back to the very beginning, going back yeah. to how God created, and he is an orderly, orderly God. So thank you for that, man. That was, that's a gem, bro. Anything else to add there, Jason? Well, I mean, I just would add, like, it's not just post-Christian. It's like pre-pagan. Yes. Uh, the, even the pagans Absolutely. understood creation. Yeah. Even the, I mean, yeah. the, good, good. the, uh, the days of St. Paul understood. Pagan. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, I would say, I would say we're moving to full-on paganism. So this is, this is an interesting thing. I was thinking about the, the movement of uh, from modernism, which you might say like Darwinism is a product of modernism, but also a lot of the things that we saw that led to World War II, now a movement into postmodernism. In postmodernism, you can pick your own gender, right? Um, so I would say that people are holding some sort of mix of those. They may hold a scientific mix, but they might hold a, a postmodernist view, which is also very much <laughs> not scientific. At the same time, which is where I, I think you're making the point that we are moving towards this a very paganistic view of what's going yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, when I when I say pre-pagan, I'm trying to bring to the to to the forefront that you know pagans, even animists, they got that there was God. that there was a god of some sort. Like they understood there was a creator. That it just didn't happen. Um, so, I mean, you look at all the Eastern religions and, you know, even the Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon, all, they all had a creation story. Like they all had a story on how we got here. Um, now to a certain extent, so does our age, which is evolution, but notice like we are the determinants of that. So it's not as though they're not worshiping. It's not as though they don't have a God. They just don't know it. 
and they don't know that they're worshiping. I mean, you know, the guys in science becomes the, their god. Well, science or themselves or there, yeah, any other a uh, whole host of things. No, no one in the Areopagus would have been surprised if St. Paul said that they were idolaters. They all knew they were because they knew, they all had idols. Uh, no one in so, our age gets that they're idolaters, even though they have idols. They're just not made out of wood and bricks. So, so and I've stone had it explained to me this way that, that the hallmarks of paganism can be seen with three things. You can observe three things to say is this pagan. It would be number one is worshiping nature. Um, it's creation rather than the creator. Number two is uh, sexual decadency. And number three is child sacrifice. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we got all three. And we got all three going on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. So let's let's pivot a little bit. You know, Jason, lead time has been going on just like your podcast for five, six, seven years. And uh, I, I, third generation LCMS pastor. And, and I get I get frustrated i guess uh that more of these conversations are not had because if if uh people generally don't know uh you and they have some generalities about who i am they would think it's strange that you and i are are talking because of maybe our different understandings of the liturgy and how it exactly gets expressed maybe in our unique context or something something like that and i really think the the narrative for us as leaders in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod has to elevate to to places of uh, really creedal agreement is what we've arrived at right here. This is this is it. There's no other way outside of Jesus that we are saved. the The Word and the sacraments are the means of grace uh, that create and sustain faith, and people desperately need to be reoriented in worship or restoried and or served by God through through word and sacrament on a consistent weekly weekly basis. So we can definitely agree on, on those on those things. But what is your hope for the LCMS? I just came out of the convention and still have the you know a little bit of scars. It's been a month and a half or so from that and it's just it's just sometimes it's a struggle. Have you been to a convention before, Jason? I don't I don't know. Have you been a yeah, delegate? I've, I've been to two uh, I went in okay. 2016 and then 2013. So okay, so I was there in 16 and then I've been at 19 and now and now 23. So so three of them, and I just pray for more space for yes, theological and very practical conversations that would lead from a place of unity and love and that are our witness for the world would be would be winsome. Um, and I think there needs to be, I'm, I'm okay with dialogue and debate. I just think it needs to be a little more long form. And I think podcasts are a great, a great space for that because we can, uh, we can agree. Anything to add though, on the necessity for, for we and the LCMS to kind of work from a place of unity. And then, and then we can, you know, as one brother sharpens another, we can sharpen one another with love and charity for our work in our unique context. Any words there though, Jason? Yeah. I mean, it's, just like I tell my kids or my people, you know, we should find ways to stay in conversations and not get out of them um, and not shut down. Um, there probably is, as we all know, especially talking with kids, like there's a time to say no more. Um, but, you know, you, typically, you know, when that time has come, like, and it all depends what we're talking about, right? If, if it's, if, if someone wants to talk about, you know, women's ordination, I think that 
conversation is over. Uh, someone wants to talk about um, what are the ways that we go about actually, well, for example, in your instance, how do we train pastors? Um, we do have a gold standard, um, but is that the only way? And uh, can we make that happen? Can we make the only the gold standard happen right now? Is that the only way to make it happen right now? I think you can talk about those things. Um, yeah. And and hopefully you can see, you know, maybe there is a different way. Maybe maybe we have the best way, yeah. and we should find a way to make that happen for everyone. Um, so, but but so there are some things I think that are off the table. You know, like the divinity of Jesus. Uh, you know, all the things that are in our confessions, yeah. that kind of stuff. But you know, exactly. there are other things that I think are uh, we agree that these things are important. Uh, now let's talk about the best way to make them happen. So before we got on, you said in your Goddess Chink crowd, your podcast, that you you get a little because uh, it's easy to go to worship, right? And you say, ah, I, we can talk about liturgy only for so long. So what are some of the other topics that are really fascinating for you as it relates to theology and practice uh, today? I'd love to love to get your perspective, and you can even uh, flip it on us and and ask us in our context our perspective. So yeah. this is good. Um, well, I mean, I like talking about the topics of the day, you know, so like, yeah, how do we deal with, um, we, we are constantly hearing that the Missouri Senate is racist. Is this true? Hmm. And how do we actually deal with this? Um, or, um, you know, we are the large catechism that was we talked about that you know the the release of the large catechism with contemporary applications and annotations uh i you know i i do stuff on fasting what are practices mm. that actually can help you induce uh a painful state and teach yourself some kind of discipline that you can say no to your body and you don't have to just give in to, to pain every single time. So I, I've, I've done like political topics. Yeah. I've, I've talked to people outside the synod. Um, so I've, I've talked to Doug Wilson once I've talked to, um, uh, we've done a podcast on Christian nationalism. So we did, mm -hmm. I interviewed Stephen, um, God, Stephen Wolf, the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. Um, I will be talking to Andrew Isker coming up. He wrote that book with Torba on Christian nationalism, as well as the Boniface option instead of instead of the Benedict option. Uh, uh, so, you know, I mean, some of them are kind of fire rod people, but they're, yeah. they're saying stuff that other people aren't saying. And I resonate with some of it like you know you have a point here let's talk about it yeah so no that's how really about you good. guys well just just to your point you know uh there will be more and more christians asking the question like what is their responsibility to obey in a society that becomes more and more hostile to christianity yeah um just yeah. recently we did, we, california passed a law yeah uh, saying that if you don't affirm the, the chosen gender of your child, 
that could be cons- construed as child abuse and that may yeah. impact your custody of your children. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So we did, we did three episodes on, um, Lutheran resistance theory. Uh, so building on, mm. uh, all of Lutheran <laughs> Melanchthon stuff, including the Magdeburg Confec- confession that came out after essentially COVID. I mean, COVID was really, really a blessing. Um, I mean, in hindsight, it was really difficult going through it, but a blessing in hindsight. Um, you know, people, it was interesting because you didn't see, like, I found myself agreeing with people that I wouldn't have thought I would agree with. Like, they weren't high church liturgical guys, but they were, we need to stay open. This is crazy. Um, we can't let the government tell dictate how we do our services and what we what we do in them uh, and there were people who were not what I'd say goddess type people who were saying that I'm like they're right and there were goddess type people who were like no we need to sh- close down we need to shut down we need to do everything that the government says and it was it was a very surreal experience and so it was kind of just strange <laughs> you know my going into it, my impression would have been uh, much different. And so, uh, you know, I really kind of uh, woke up to, I got woke, as they say, uh, only in a different way. <laughs> That's good. Thanks for, thanks for clarifying. Reverse so, woke. <laughs> um, reverse woke. So t- talk about Lutheran resistance theory. I- I'd just like to pause on that for a second. Can you give us a summary of what you learned through Lutheran resistance theory? I think that's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, uh, essentially, right, that, you know, Romans 13 it was used as the, kind of like just the primary cudgel yep. to say Perfect. just do what the government says instead of the way that um, – all of the reformers used it, which was, this means that there's a duty of the government to do what is commanded by God. And so, mm-hmm. you know, all of the reformers, when they're dealing with the possible invasion by Charles V or, you know, can we, um, can we resist even to the point of taking up arms? Um, you know, they were like, there are some things that we can suffer. Uh, there are some things within tyranny that we can endure, but if they're telling us that um, we can't preach and teach the true gospel, uh, that we can't gather together, that we can't do what we know is right, then you not only have a right, but a duty to resist, even to the point of bearing arms. So um, that was kind of essentially what we went through all the way up to Magdeburg, which was kind of the culmination of Luther's and Melanchthon's thoughts coming up to that, that, that point during the interims. So, uh, Romans 13, in other words, is our verse, right? Romans 13 is not their verse to get us to do what they want. It's our verse. And it's our verse to tell them there's a particular order that you need to be uh, maintaining and you're not doing that. And so well, it's our duty that's to exactly resist. That's exactly what Luther you. did. He resisted, right? I mean, he had all yeah. kinds of orders put on him and he just, well, I'm not, not doing that. I keep, I'm not doing I'm, that. My loyalty is to scripture, scripture right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so but it's yeah, three hours sure. worth of, of podcast if you want to listen to them. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for the summary. Let's throw out another one there that, that we've heard um, recently. And this is this is fascinating for me. I I don't I think confessional and mission oriented evangelical in the best sense of the word two sides of the same coin that's my that's my perspective as i look at the the word of god as the great commission gets carried out uh propelled by the word uh the the all of the priesthood of all believers kind of sent out to bring the message of of jesus in our various vocations um but there there are some that and i just want to get my head wrapped around this so maybe you agree with this or you disagree i, I just would love to get a deeper perspective who say that evangelism is primarily if not exclusively the role of the ordained ordained pastor and uh would love for you to kind of enlighten us where that thought comes from and if you share that thought um yeah defend it and let's let's have a good chat yeah i wouldn't defend that thought um okay uh i suppose it just means uh, for for me i guess it it would mean what you mean by evangelism if you mean Missionary yeah. activity, like, uh, like local missionaries. I mean, the reality is, we live in a time where most of our clergy view themselves primarily, or perhaps even only, as chaplains to their congregation and not local missionaries to their communities. And that was not the case in the Missouri Synod from before the 1950s. You know, we have grown up and lived in a time where really kind of partially because of our birth rate, but, you know, we peaked in the 1950s and all you had to do was put a sign like Future Church of Missouri Synod right. Congregation and people would show up. Boom. And, and, and that has really kind of fostered a particular mentality among, uh, among our clergy that, that we are primarily chaplains to our congregations. That's not wrong. But that was not the understanding of really any anyone before 1950. Uh, so, so I had done a podcast on uh, John Fritz's practical missionary, where he talks about like your one of your duties is also evangelizing the town, and yeah, it's or a both being and. a missionary to the town. Yeah, it's a both and. It's a both so, and rather than either or. I, where nobody would say, "Don't be a chaplain to your." congregation exactly also yeah. be a missionary <laughs> right yeah exactly and and oh by the way we desperately need missionary work in america right uh i mean oh, other countries are sending people to america to do <laughs> missionary work because like we've said before yeah. we're becoming so deeply pagan yeah so uh, i i wouldn't say it's a, a just a pastor thing but at the very minimum it's a pastor thing and i'm Good. not even sure if we're there in you know most people's minds, most pastors' minds, that they're also a missionary to their community. Um, so beyond that, yeah, I mean, I think that part of our training in righteousness, the discussion about sanctification, is that they are that our people are well prepared to hmm. to give a defense for the hope that is within them. That they're well prepared to keep conversations going about, you know, why do you go to church that's weird? Uh, well, this is why, you know, to, to be able to answer that question. Or when you go to work and they say, what did you do this weekend? You don't answer primarily, I went to a football game, but that I went to church. 
And this is what I, this is what I learned. And this is why I go because, you know, this is what it gives me. And it, it's just like changing, I guess, a perspective that, um, that evangelism isn't this program that you set out to do as a church, but isn't, it is the life of a Christian period. It is part of the calling. It's part of living out your life as a Christian that you're going to tell people about Jesus and you're going to defend the hope that's within you. That's just what yes. you do. So <laughs> seems pretty, seems pretty clear from, from Jesus, uh, the, not just Matthew 28, but acts, acts one witnesses. And, and that goes back to Martyrail, right? I mean, suffering servants, those who are carrying the marks of Christ, the the way of the cross out into a dark and dying world, which is so, so countercultural uh, today. So yeah, when we gather for refreshment in the word to be served by God, we are served and then we are, we are sent. And if the pastor doesn't model that sentness, how can we expect all of God's people in our various vocations to do so? Is that a good summary, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I think that's great, but also to expect pushback. Like you should yeah, expect sure. you should expect that when you do this, people will um not respond like you think they will or they they will not re- and you, you, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Um Amen. Like one of the I don't know, I I there's this part in The Horse and His Boy, C.S. Lewis's uh um, Chronicles of Narnia, where um, Sash, Sash, Shasta has been on a, a really difficult task. And he gets done with that. And then he's immediately put on one that's really, really hard, even, even harder. And the narrator, Lewis, says, at, at this point in time, Shasta had not yet learned that often when you complete one difficult task, you are often rewarded with a, another one that is more difficult and better. And so part of what I'm, you know, what I'm trying to inculcate or uh, establish in people is like, look, you've just been promoted. Like you've been promoted and there's going to be more difficulties. Embrace the promotion. Like, this is good. You've been promoted. God is saying you're doing well by giving you more difficult things. And it's going to feel like he's hurting you, but he's just promoted you. Mm. Ah, so good. And again, that is the the way of the cross. I keep going back to that in our conversation today. The promotion of Jesus was all the way to the cross for the forgiveness of the world. And and then he's inviting us into that exact exact same promotion. And it's so counter to a uh, consumeristic, hedonistic culture in which we live today. Uh, so get used to being weird, Lutheran Christian. It's uh, it's not it's not the way of the world. Let's let's close with this topic. Just a few more minutes on uh, on formation. I really believe the quantity and quality of leaders needed for uh, the future, not just the present, but the future of the church, is the discussion that we as leaders and pastors need to be at the table with this. Um, we live in a rapidly. I know you're in a little bit more of a rural context. Uh, we take 
evangelism and reaching people with word and sacrament very seriously in one of the fastest growing cities in America here in, in Phoenix. And so um, we, we're running a test right now with competency-based theological education, and we will be interacting with the Pastoral Formation Committee, Jason, here in the next uh, handful of months. And uh, we're praying that it's looked upon, it's assessed, analyzed. Those are words that came out of convention with curiosity rather than condemnation. And uh, we, we really are are talking about the need for bivocational and co-vocational uh, leaders today. And we have a number of them who are in our context, bivocational, meaning they could end up serving full-time, like we're privileged, honored to do co-vocational, meaning um, they they won't. They may be a house church or it's some sort of a smaller faith expression, and they're going to con- continue to be a, a realtor or something like that out in, out in the workplace. But um, we just have had this incredible treasure of our universities and our seminaries for so long. And I, I feel like uh, the world has changed and the church is evolving in such a way. And, and we're kind of uh, a number of our leaders are just saying, no, no, no. It's And it's not head in the sand. I don't think that's it at all. They're recognizing there's this profound need. But it feels to me sometimes like we're just yelling louder and that somehow is going to bring the next gen of leaders to, and I'm, I'm good with set apart to serve uh, the initiative that's coming from James Bannock and, and the group. I'm going to be joining that, that group to talk about that, that need. But I think we have a window right now and maybe it's a generational window where we need to explore bivocational and co-vocational, but deeply Lutheran theological formation and residential, I, I think uh, is not the only way. And I don't think SMP is even the only way because it doesn't have a degree and it's kind of set as a second rate, maybe training formation pathway, though I love I love our, our SMP pastors. So any thoughts as it relates to formation and the need for bivocational, co-vocational pastors, Jason? Well, I, you know, I don't know about um, bivocational, co-vocational here and, you know, where, where we're at. That yeah. might be a possibility in the future. Um, May not be necessary. But, but I, I just don't know. Um I, I think we'll end up having it's gonna take a bit for our smaller churches, which is a reality, to either combine or close, uh particularly in an perhaps not an area like yours, but in an area like mine where I can throw a rock and hit a, a Lutheran church in any direction. So people might have to drive a bit longer they might not have one in their exact town but that was not always the case anyway so um so i I don't know what that looks like as things unfold in closings of or mergings of churches and things like that um yeah i mean part of the issue is the missouri sin is just strange um we are undecided on whether we are actually uh, you know, Episcopal or congregational. Congregational. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are congregational, but we act often, uh, not just from the top down, but even the way pastors um, view districts and synod, we often act as though we're Episcopal. an Episcopal situation. So we kind of have this strange interaction and the way we live. Um, I, I, I could li- I could live under either an Episcopal or a congregational model, um, but we're a congregational model, and while you know we've agreed to live according to this model, uh, it seems as though like 
if we've agreed to this and now we're not going to, um, we want to do it a different way, there's always an opportunity to say, look, we don't want to be a part of this anymore. Um, now, whether that should be, you know, the final say, hopefully the, you know, leaders would, would say, well, let's at least take a look at this, what you're doing. Um, so it's not like a forced issue that you have to belong to the Missouri Synod or, or anything like that. So it's just, like I said, the Missouri Synod is strange in that regard that uh, we operate with feet in both worlds of congregational and kind of Episcopal model. And that causes tension. And um, so being all the more ready to um, actually ask permission and seek to be part of the solution instead of just going rogue. And what I find a lot uh, is what, you know, what happens in our day is like, we're just not getting the answer where we want. So we just go rogue. Um, and if that, if that worked, if that happened in my family, like with my kids, that'd be a whole different, I would understand the conversation from the top down, right? If my kid went rogue because he thought I wasn't giving him something right. that I should have, uh, okay, we got to have a, a chat about this. So we just have to, again, we have to have some tactical em empathy for the leaders at the top. Why are they resistant to whatever they're resistant to? And then the leaders at the top, why are they pushing so hard to do this? What opportunities do they see? How do they want to, you know, strike the iron while it's hot, so to speak? Uh, and again, that's going to take some coming to the same table, some time and effort. I mean, really effort, it's work uh, to come to the table and talk about those things and be willing to say, um, be willing at the end to say, okay, maybe I'm wrong. And I would say that, you know, for any Good. situation. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Jack, you got any follow-up on that? I, I agree with tactical empathy. I 100% agree with that. And that is a very uh, interesting observation that you made that we have kind of uh, feet in both both pools, right? The congregational and the Episcopal sort of model. Mm -hmm. um, it's true. <laughs> I, I never really thought in that type of term before. It makes a lot of sense. And now I understand maybe a little bit more the tension sometimes that we experience I will say this, what it kind of creates is an example, maybe uh, what we're going through right now. We've got this big, ambitious vision for our own ministry context where we see ourselves being a multi-site ministry, 20 campuses over 20 years, and a lot of, in, you know, a lot of energy and excitement and passion behind that. And we also know that in order to staff that, that we have to think radically different than the models are presenting themselves to us right now. And mm -hmm. so um, I think the frustration that can exist between the tension of these two is when you've got a congregation that is uh, on fire and, and they want to get things done and they see yeah. maybe a body that is slowing that work down. And then you say, well, wait, we're, we're supposed to be all about the Great Commission here. You know, nothing should slow. <laughs> nothing should slow that down, you know, and, and that's, that could be a gut-wrenching uh, thought for people to think that something's going to slow down your mission work, right? Yeah. 
So I think that yeah. that might be why be, you might see people tempted, I would say, to go rogue <laughs> in that particular instance. Um, yeah, not that and I'm I didn't mean encouraging that, is, that. Yeah, and I didn't mean that as a judgment in any way. Um, right. The I the the curiosity I think would be um, to say. You know, to, to have a discussion of, and maybe I'll just ask you guys, like, so why 20, why 20 sites that are kind of under the umbrella of the, uh, this church instead of planting sister churches? What's the strategic value of that instead of kind of the model that we've inherited? What What's the purpose behind that? What Why do you see that as... Um, as uh, as offering kind of a best solution for where you're at and 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 what you're doing and it's a good question yeah jack yeah so from our perspective um we've been blessed to learn a lot from congregations within the lcms but we've also looked outside the lcms to see what are practical ways um to grow uh, the church to reach more people. Uh, we are 100% committed to our Lutheran theology, but we see the multi-site campus as a very positive model that reaches a whole lot of more people and mobilizes a lot more people into ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, what we've often seen is that uh, there's a whole bunch of independent congregations throughout the state of Arizona. They're all doing their own thing. They're all, you know, they all have the freedom to reach the people their own way, but they're also all trying to reinvent the wheel. Every single one of them is trying to reinvent the wheel. And if there's a, if there are models, if there are systems, if there is, let's call it branding, if there's, if there's resources that you've been able to um, bring to bear that works really, really well, mm-hmm. and then you can replicate that. We see that as a very winsome way of doing ministry. Sure. So. Yeah, there's a little bit of scalability, and and I think it's a model that is probably most suited for urban and suburban contexts um, in America rather than rural contexts. And it's a test we're running, uh, holding it with an open hand. Uh, you know, if the Holy Spirit wants to lead us as the body of Christ to say we need independent congregations, I've had a number of, of conversations that it could just be for a season of time where a church is with us and you need to recognize that, call it out from the get-go, and hopefully they reach a season of maturity where where they could, they could build their own respective identity um, to reach their own unique context. But if the if the context and the and the group that you're reaching, your uh, target demographic, whatever you want to say, is mm-hmm. like young families, we call them the green family, and so many young families with kids. We got a preschool connected to us. If that target demographic is similar, then a brand may be able to move into multiple locations. But again, holding that with a very open hand, I think it's a it's very much an adiaphora exactly. first article reality first article reality conversation. This is not theologies. This is just uh, what is wise in this in this context right now. Yeah. So it's working for us. It may not work for you, Jason. Thoughts? Um, yeah. So I would just so two questions come up, and that would be: um, Do we not already have a brand, namely the LCMS, and how is this brand different? Um, and so the second one would be kind of alongside of that is how do you then answer probably something that you've gotten the charge that you're building your own kingdom, not God's. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. 
I'm not saying you um, are. I don't know. I, I you no, know, no, no, I think no. this it's, is it's a fair, it's a fair from question. what you've described. It sounds like you know decent work. I'm just, yeah. Is, so if you were on my podcast, that's what I would. These are the things I'd be asking you guys. Well, yeah, I love it. I love it. That's what I was hoping you you would do. So um, I don't know, and this is this gets down to branding. Uh, we in our context recognize that Lutheran meant liberal. Uh, and and the LCMS is certainly not liberal, but more people are in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and some some other offshoots that are that are more liberal. So I have to do a lot of work to even define what Lutheran means in a post Christian or as we've said here, maybe even a pagan culture. Mm-hmm. And so um, having a brand that may not front Lutheran, but more just you know, Christian, uh, Lutheranism, Jesus. And so in our value set, Jason, we did a lot of work on this. It's Jesus, it's Bible, and then it's Lutheran, very clearly Lutheran church, Missouri synod. And so, uh, there was a little bit of brand confusion there. I don't know if that's answering your question. I don't know. I I have to do a lot of work right now to help people understand what Lutheran church, Missouri synod even means in a, in a post-Christian pagan culture here. I guess that's the short of it. Anything else to add there, but it's a really good, it's a really good question. Yeah, no, that, that was, that was clearly the pattern that's emerging in our areas that um, the way that we've been successful reaching young families is to say, Hey, we are, we're Christian, we're biblical. We might even use the word conservative because it, it appeals to certain people. And then based on the experience that they have with us, then they become open to the idea of Lutheran. Mm-hmm. But it's not the word Lutheran that we're fronting that has been the thing that the primary thing that is attractive, except for the school. Um, yeah. The word Lutheran school mm-hmm. is an attractive thing, you know, in the way that a Catholic sure. school might have a certain brand to it. But when people are thinking yeah. about church, um, we love Lutheran. We're passionate about it. We become—I would say, if anything—we become more Lutheran over time with sort of the experimental training that we've been doing. Yeah. But it's also true that we're not the biggest Lutheran body out there, and there's baggage that people have about that word, mm-hmm. which I lament. I deeply lament that it has that baggage. And uh, yeah, let's take it back. We man. have to work work through it. No, I, that's interesting. That you raised that question because, um, or that you raised that that response in your community that Lutheran doesn't mean LCMS doesn't mean conservative, doesn't mean biblical. I've found a similar thing, even in, you know, rural Illinois and just in the Midwest, uh, cause they always then ask you like, which one? Um, right. so they might know that there's a conservative one and there's a liberal one, but it doesn't automatically mean that you are, uh, you know, biblically based or, you know, Christ-centered, biblically based, and uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, uh, conservative in your values and 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 what you hold to. So um, and, that and makes when we're sense. Trying to reach, right. When yeah, we're trying to reach sense. unchurched yeah. families, there's, I would say, most people would not be even sophisticated enough to say which one. Ask that that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's really fascinating because, um, you know, I spent a lot of time then saying like, yeah, so we're the conservative one and this is what we stand for. You just kind of walk through the solas and, um, and they're like, oh, wow, that's, that sounds really great. Um, but, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. So 
we'll see. We'll see what the Lord wants to do. And um, I, I dusted off a book. Now, I don't agree with everything in this book. You know, we don't always agree. We should read things that we don't wholeheartedly agree with. But the book Authority Vested, do you remember this, Jason, from back in the day from Mary Todd? Did you ever read this? I had. Yeah, I had to read it in uh, undergrad. And she has. I did, too, actually, at, uh, at Concordia Seward. That's and I was turned on to it again. I, she comes to some conclusions about women's ordination that, that I don't necessarily agree with. But what, what she does is she really summarizes in the history about this battle between congregational polity and Episcopal polity, right? I mean, Stefan comes over and what a, what a fascinating uh, train wreck of a story it really was. And they're left basically here as orphans. And then they kind of establish its congregational polity under Walther's leadership, where word and sacrament is, where the body of Christ are, the priesthood of all believers are, there the church is. And, and at the same time, the church should call pastors and leaders to to lead them uh, in word and sacrament ministry. So it's really, uh, I don't know if you need it, listener, I don't know if I'm necessarily recommending the book, but I did I did like her her first half of uh, telling telling the LCMS's story because it's really, it's kind of a, it's kind of a story that we should probably discuss more often than we do because in the big scheme of the things, I mean, we're not even a 200 year old church body. Praise be to God. We've even lasted, you know, pushing 200, pushing 200 years. But I think the wounds of that kind of, that kind of battle over where does authority actually lie is something that's still very relevant for us today. Any comments on that as we close, Jason, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. uh, Recommended with caveats. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, uh, the Lord is good and it's it's a joy to be um, in community with you. It's a joy to have technology, Jason, where we get to, to learn with you today. We're praying for your work, uh, your faithful work there in Illinois. And I, I pray that you would pray for us in our in our desire to be faithful, to reach people with the gospel here and remain robustly confessional, conservative, and mission-mindedly Lutheran in this day and age, because I really do believe, we believe, uh, and I know your podcast would say the same, man, we, we have the goods, man. Uh, our confessions are are so so good. It's such a treasure. Few other denominations have what we have in our the solas, also in the Lutheran confessions. And I pray that we have more conversations of love and charity and challenge and accountability uh, moving forward. So thanks so much, Jason. If people want to connect with you and your your podcast. How can they do so? Uh, they can go to godestines.org uh, and just hit the podcast tab. It's on all of the normal channels podcast things yeah <laughs> i'm i'm a spotify guy are you itunes or yeah i just use itunes itunes yeah, yeah. yeah. jack is anti apple so he does not do I any of that <laughs> the technology technology overlord of apple yeah yeah <laughs> alignment with you google do, you do resist you do resist anyhow this is lead time sharing is caring please like subscribe comment wherever it is that you take it in and we'll we promise to have more uh hopefully fruitful jesus-centered conversations on lead time in the coming weeks thanks so much jason this has been fun god bless thank you take care 
You've been listening to Lead Time, a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective. The ULC's mission is to collaborate with the local church to discover, develop, and deploy leaders through biblical Lutheran doctrine and innovative methods. To partner with us in this gospel message, subscribe to our channel, then go to the UniteLeadership.org to create your free login for exclusive material and resources, and then to explore ways in which you can sponsor an episode. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode. The Unite Leadership Collective is excited to announce the launch of our new online learning platform. Whether you're considering entering into ministry or already leading, we have the resources that you need to become an empowered leader in your ministry. Our learning platform will release new courses every quarter with our first available course, Becoming an Engaged Leader, available now. But by joining our monthly membership, you'll unlock unlimited access to all of our courses and gain entry into our exclusive coaching community space where ministry leaders can connect with each other. This community also grants you access to bi-weekly coaching calls led by the ULC team, private Zoom calls, and additional team discounts. To celebrate the launch, we're offering introductory rates for all of our courses and the monthly subscription plan. Just enroll prior to January 1st using the code 75ULC2023 to get 75% off at checkout. Visit the UniteLeadership.org to learn more about our online learning platform and start your journey to lead effectively in any church settings today.